Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. We're really glad to have you with us, and we've got some exciting news. We've got our new pint glasses with the Theology Pugcast logo, and uh, they look great. And we're going to post uh, a photograph of one of the glasses with a uh, with uh, some 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 stuff in it that uh, looks like beer. <laughs> and uh, looks great. And what we what we're hoping to do, we're going to post that on our Facebook page. And what we what we'd like to see happen is we'd love to see folks uh, share that that image of the of the glass and uh, uh, link uh, or tag the Theology Podcast Facebook page, and then encourage your you know friends to like the show and give the show a try. And you might even want to. You know, mention your favorite episode, your favorite uh, show from the podcast, and encourage folks to listen into it. And uh, if you do that, uh, we're going to be aware because we'll be tagged, and we will go to our random selector magic machine thingy and select a winner, a winner of a of of a of a theology podcast glass. And uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, hopefully uh, this will work out great. We've got some other ideas to introduce folks to uh, the podcast. But uh, with that advertisement out of the way, I'm C.R. Wiley, and I'm the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. And I'm working on a book on Tom Bombadil. So that's a little bit about me. Now, uh, Glenn... Uh, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, conferences coming up. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I run a ministry called Every Scranch Ministries. Uh, one thing I should note about the glass giveaway, we are giving away just the glass, not the content. ATF would have something to say about that. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, there's going to be an FLF conference. Uh, It will be in Nashville the first weekend in October. And uh, I will be speaking there. Uh, I'll be doing something on uh, enchantment, language, uh, the sexual revolution, a couple of other things. And uh, along with that, I should note, I'll be on, well, by now it may already be posted, I'll be on CrossPolitik, uh, talking yeah. about those same things coming up. But the conference in Nashville, it may be the only Christian conference that is actually going to be run this year. So <laughs> you should uh, definitely look into that. And uh, <laughs> I, I think it, uh, it, sh- it looks like a great conference. Yeah, yeah, I've heard the news. We've got several hundred people signed up for it already. And uh, FLF, in case you don't know, is the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and uh, we are a part of that. All right, Tom, it's your day. Why don't you introduce yourself and introduce the theme of the show? Hey, I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And uh, theme of the day is actually going to be just springboarding off of some, um, some of the content of a book that uh, I read a couple of years ago that was uh, very interesting. Um, it, it definitely um, runs in line with a lot of the themes we've developed on the show over time. 
and uh, it actually put them into application in relationship to to film and shows and movies. Um, something that kind of touches touches all of us. And uh, and so it was. I, I stumbled back across it and started through the first chapter. And I said, you know what? This would be a great springboard for a lot of the topics and and wrap it around certain um, you know certain. Uh, cultural and popular vehicles like film to kind of see the way in which some of the ideas and some of the dispositions and attitudes we we engage and wrestle with um, are informing us all of the time. And so I'll start with the title of the book, and I'm just going to work through one part, and I think different weeks I'll be addressing different parts because I think the book has that much content. And so what is the book? Well, I'm going to go ahead and, and give you uh, this directly off the cover. I wish I could hold it up, but in this case, it's an e-book, so I don't want to try to do that. But uh, Thomas Hibbs is the author, and I believe he's the president of uh, University of Dallas, uh, the Catholic oh, yeah. uh, sure. uh, University uh, president there. I think formerly he taught um, medieval philosophy um, at Baylor. Um, for many years. He's written for First Things, and, and uh, you see his name on different things. And he's written a lot of work on uh, Thomas Aquinas, but he has he's kind of brought that expertise into the, the arena of evaluating culture, American culture in particular, and film, you know, um, even more particularly. So the, sh the book is called Nihilism, well, Shows About Nothing, ah. Nihilism in Popular Culture. And so um, that, that's kind of the, the, the core of it. And it would probably be good just to give a small breakdown of what the chapters look like. That way you kind of have a little bit of a frame of, of where he goes with it. Um, the first thing is nihilism American style. And so that's what we're dealing with today. Um, then the second chapter, the quest for, for evil. And he's going to engage the way in which film um, it has developed over time, especially in the American context, uh, addressing the issue of evil and defining it, relating to it. Um, he has another chapter, the negative zone, um, nor normal. He's, mm -hmm. he's playing on, on television shows from the sixties. <laughs> yes. Sixties <laughs> and seventies. <laughs> you see a lot of that come up. And I think that was one of the fun parts of reading this book is even some of these, even though they even go back some of the f movies from the 40s, there's stuff I remember growing up, and, and uh, all of a sudden you realize how much you were being shaped by things and how different the shaping was um, in the different generations with the different philosophical moods. Um, so, yeah, he's got uh, normal nihilism as cosmic. And then chapter five, which I, I definitely look forward to doing because I'm doing a lot of work now on on the history of romanticism so this one is romanticism and nihilism um, a defense against the dark arts that's chapter six that would probably go uh, with your interests uh, Chris and and some of the uh, the horror writers <laughs> um, God got involved chapter seven and then feels like the movies chapter eight and I don't want to uh, give away what all of that is about yet um, but one of the things he's doing, of course, is he he's wanting to look at the, the he's wanting to look at film and shows, especially kind of popular uh, movies and shows that have impacted American culture first and foremost. That's the audience of, of this book. And since that's a large part of our audience, um, 
it's a lot of this stuff will kind of resonate. Um, but well, I think you know, you know, before you go any further, I'm, you know, I, I, I watch uh, stuff on YouTube and I see stuff from Korea and Australia and sort it's just amazing how much they are also wrapped up in American pop culture. Yes. And I, I think film may be one of those vehicles that spread <laughs> these kind of ideas in ways um, we, we can't even imagine. And this is one of those things I think, I mean, we could even spend some time talking about it and we probably should is the way in which film and shows are such a powerful vehicle and they take art and spirit, spirituality and material mediums and then technology and just almost create this, um, you know, quasi <laughs> um, ubiquitous <laughs> um, influence and impact. And I think because it impacts us, film impacts us on levels beyond merely the sensual and the senses, but they, they, it does engage us in many ways holistically. Um, its influence, uh, I think, and in the various forms of it now, social media and the, the YouTube and, and what, you know, what a lot of us are familiar with daily, um, I think this stuff is, is, is bringing into our lives and our dispositions and our attitudes and our thoughts a whole host, if not flood, of different, you know, strands and pressures that it's very hard to even make sense of, much less know how much it's impacting us. One of the things that I'm really pleased with is our church youth group, PCM. We've had a very, uh, I think, serious and uh, well-led youth program over the years that has attracted, you know, families from all over the place. In fact, one of the one of the graduates of our youth group is working on her PhD right now at the University of Dallas. Mm. Um, but uh, worldview uh, sort of training and thinking has been very integral. And uh, our young people are, are regularly uh, encouraged to watch a film, a secular film, and then break it, up, break it down Good, yeah. by our youth leaders. There's, there's a lot of worldview sort of decoding that goes on. Yeah. Uh, in our youth group, and it's been a tremendous help to to our young people. They, they, it, it, it really disarms a lot of these yeah. things, particularly the negative stuff. Yeah, I think I think exactly. Right. I, I know a lot of people, you know, the you know kind of evangelicals that want to kind of use the historicist notion of impact that ideas don't really impact us; it's really forces. There's some truth in that, but it's not the full truth. I think what we see is these ideas are both embodying certain forces, but they're also promoting and guiding and governing. And that kind of interaction, for somebody to actually be able to put a pause on it and actually engage it consciously um, is, at a, I think, a healthy advantage. It's, it's sort of what I would call it biblically, on one hand, a vigilance. You know, it's this, this prayerful vigilance, this, this way of attending to the way in which ideas and spir the spiritual um, impact this through these, these means. But, but that's sort of what this book is all about. And I think that it, it's not, it doesn't write in such a heavy style that most people, even, you know, uh, uh, someone in high school would, I mean, they'd be able to read this book and get something from it. So, Two, mm -hmm. two comments here. Um, one of them is that 
The reason why media is so powerful is because when we're watching a movie or a television show or something like that, we let our guard down. You know, yeah. you're going to be reading a, you know, or if you're going to be participating in a debate, if there's a discussion of something, if someone's trying to push a political issue, all your guards go up. You know, yeah. and you, that's the point at which you start thinking critically. But when you're watching a movie, when you're getting involved in a, uh, a story or something like that, you let your guards down because you want to enjoy the experience. You want to participate in the story. You want to be, be part of it, in a sense, or, or engaged with it. And what that does is it means you lower your guard and it allows things to sneak in below the radar and start influencing you without you even knowing it. Yeah. 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 That, that. Having said that, there's another side to it, and this is point two. Um, back when uh, there was all of the the concern about Harry Potter uh, teaching people witchcraft and things like that, there was someone, I, I wish I remember who it was that said this. I was uh, teaching at a Colson Fellows, well, Centurions program in those days, uh, program, and one of the speakers said, don't confuse a plot device with a worldview statement. <laughs> so in that case, you've got something like Harry Potter, where magic is being used as a plot device. It's not a worldview statement. So okay. trying to get the balance between the two ends up being a little bit tricky. It's, yeah, well, that's an excellent point, because that's something actually that, um, that Hibbs addresses in his first chapter with nihilism. Because just because there's characters in it that are nihilistic, or there is dark mood and, and certain people wrestling through meaninglessness and and you know a, a, you know on the level of of life and values and and any larger purpose um he uses woody allen's movies as a good yeah. example that he says that doesn't necessarily make these nihilistic films um that they're strictly promoting it he says actually the fact that they're wrestling with it shows that there's this isn't this isn't what he's on to when he's talking about sort of shows about nothing um, so he'll give examples of shows about nothing, but he will he will talk about the the way in which whether it's a part of a plot or a character, um, the the issue nihilistic issues come up. And so his working definition at, at the beginning of nihilism. Be, just be, be, uh, Tom, just before <laughs> you jump into that, I just want to make a quick comment because I think there's a there's really something valuable here, particularly for parents. Mm -hmm. You know what 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 Glenn just brought up about the Harry Potter books. A uh, little anecdote quick. I remember uh, I, uh, you know, was pretty incredulous when it came to all of the scare tactics that certain well-intentioned well but uninformed and actually uneducated Christian parents were promoting. So I read, I read the series, and I remember my, my, young, my daughter was maybe, I guess, maybe five. My, my, my second uh, uh, oldest was like maybe seven. And uh, I was out on the hammock reading the first book, and they came out to me with this, these looks of, of concern and horror that their father, his soul was at risk. <laughs> <laughs> they, they had been, they, you know, they, they had heard all this stuff. But, you know, today, uh, my children are, are, are adults, and they're believers, and they're very sophisticated uh, culturally, and have the, have the uh, one of the reasons why I think that they have successfully moved into adulthood as Christians is because all the way along they were uh, taught 
how to evaluate art. Uh, and, and it wasn't just a matter of, of good and bad, but in sort of like a sorting out things, separating wheat and chaff. And when you do that, it allows you to say, hey, yeah, there are some things about this film that are not good, but there are some themes that are raised that are really important to think about. Yeah. And that kind of measured approach really is helpful for kids. The, 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 the chicken little, the sky is falling, I don't know what to do because I don't understand approach to parenting is actually something that's terribly destructive. And you actually are setting your kids up for failure. What, you know, if you're, if you're just a mom or a dad and you're just not equipped to handle the, the sort of the, the challenge of this, here's my advice. Get an education. <laughs> Stop relying on simple scare tactics. Read the stuff yourself, get an education, and show your children how to do this. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, Pastor yeah. Chris, that's fine for you. It's fine for Glenn. It's fine for Tom. No, no, it's fine for you too. You have more going for you, mom and dad, than you know. Just get to work. <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. Anyway, that's enough of my, enough of my preaching. <laughs> buy a lot of resources for that one way or the other and listen to the theology out. podcast it'll help sort of what <laughs> <laughs> anyway sorry to cut you off like that tom go for it go for it you kind of fading out on us here tom uh, so we'll do a little filler uh until you're back yeah. with us are you yeah. there tom great point in that my i think i'm breaking up on you're coming back you're coming back I'm there, but okay. okay. There you go. Am I okay now? Yep, you're doing, you're doing, you're looking, we can see you and even hear you. Now we can't. <laughs> so, so Glenn, what, have you got any thoughts for mom and dad and how yeah. to handle this kind of stuff? Quick side story. Um, when this whole Harry Potter thing came up, um, and I mentioned it to my daughter, because we were reading the books to the kids, uh, I mentioned it to my daughter who was, 10 years old or something, 11. She was really angry. And what huh. she said was, what do they think we are, stupid? We know the difference between a story and reality. <laughs> right, right. I mean, so, you know, and, and that's it. You've got to give your kids a certain amount of credit, too. Well, and now your daughter's working on her PhD, right? I mean, in theology. Right, there you go. I mean, she's, she's come through. She, she made it. She survived. <laughs> And I hope I've come back through it. <laughs> <laughs> You're back, Tom. You're back. You're better than ever. <laughs> good, good. Well, if I go out, I'm, I'm confident you both can uh, carry on and uh, we'll be okay. So, um, Well, we'll shut up for a while and let you talk. Well, but honestly, I, I wanted this to be a springboard because I think I've, I can get a lot of mileage out of this book over over a while. So, if, and I think this is an important topic because this actually springs into the something we've been discussing as well. We're talking about that sort of with film. Um, it's the same way as you mentioned with with stories, literature, um, and then and then, but also I think with the whole world of ideas and in every field of knowledge a lot of times we don't want to listen to an argument we don't want to be influenced by a set of ideas and there's a there's there's a place for that cautiousness 
and we all know the pressure in, in university sometimes to, to, to think like, you know, the way um, someone thinks, or you don't feel like you've yet have the knowledge to be able to answer something. So you wonder if you should be buying into it. So, you know, that, that, that vigilance and, and uh, cautiousness has a plus, you know, a plus side to avoid the wrong kind of curiosity. Right. Um, but the flip side of that is you end up filtering it in ways you don't even imagine. I mean, I know people that were kind of, you know, big families, homeschooled, lived out. And when they came to adulthood, they just jumped up right into the popular and the, and the worldly um, without, without any reserve. So it didn't, it, it only protected maybe while they were apart. Um, where this allows people to actually spiritually and consciously engage with the confident resources that their faith and their reason shaped by faith are able to, to um, evaluate culture and its strengths and weaknesses, find those places that, um, that are, are gifts of the created order still being expressed, and then bringing them into the fuller light of the truth. I mean, that's, I think, always what this should be about is, is um, bringing into the light, <laughs> um, and 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 that I think set, says enough. So what the, the you know the, the nihilistic turn, if if you will, um, that that Hibbs is getting onto is almost the way in which culture itself is retreating from that that task in many ways, um, seeing that there isn't much worth to anything and knowledge or in so much even experience, even though they value it so high. And so it's really a, a turn oftentimes into a radical self-indulgence or, or a retreat into some kind of arbitrary commitment. Um, and so he, he starts out the book with kind of a definition, pulling off the Latin, just meaning nothing, right? It's the philosophy or state of life characterized by a lack of meaning and purpose. Um, we know from the show, there's a lot of history into it. And I think to Hibbs great advantage, um, I was a little worried up front, he was only going to limit it to, to Nietzsche's understanding, but, uh, go back, go further in the first chapter. And he actually draws off of Gillespie, like we've done in the past and show its roots in nominalism. And when there was a break away from the, the, uh, the moral and created order in its intelligibility grounded in God and God's purposes. And so when this, you know, uh, Nietzsche kind of was, was criticizing nominalism because it basically made this world, um, it, you either had to choose the, you know, God or nothing, right? This world, you, you basically, this world was something you had to kind of separate yourself from, if you will. Um, and uh, that, you know, the full picture. But anyway, he picks up with, Real quick, um, you might want to define nominalism again. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Yeah, so so um, the two things that happened, um, sort of late parts of the Middle Ages, um, after the classic Christian view of God probably was brought to its highest uh, point of development, with figures like Saint Anselm, after Augustine, Saint Thomas Aquinas, and these these doctrines would have been shared by the early reformers. Um, none of these were being revised; they they held this. Um, even though Luther sometimes kind of wrestled a little bit with some of the way of framing it, um, but nominalism was a in a break um, 
where you could kind of put it, if we're going to put it in, in theology terms in the simplest way, classic Christianity understands the, the utter uniqueness of God in such a way um, that God is not simply the biggest thing within a shared order of things. It's not the top of a great chain that we are at the lower point and God's at the highest point. When we talk about God being the highest reality, we're talking about God as being in a reality that is God's own that we don't share. So when we talk about God being good, God is goodness itself, right? But he's not simply the same kind of goodness we have, but way up the ladder. God is goodness itself. If we have any, it's because God has shared it with us. We don't share the same thing. Well, what happens in nominalism is God no longer is the infinite source of all things, but God becomes the highest within a shared chain of everything. And God becomes one big power in relationship to a bunch of smaller powers. History will be a power. Nature will be a power. The human will be a power. And so no longer is there a, a, a shared world of meaning because God has not ordered things anymore according to, to goodness that is ordered towards an intelligible goodness, grounded in the intelligible goodness of God, for example. Now it is just sheer arbitrary meaning. God has just imposed his will on everything. And so we're in part of God's imposition of will. Nature is. And so any form that's there is just God's arbitrary form. It has no meaning beyond that. So there is no shared real meaning other than the arbitrary. And so... So, so what becomes of God in, in this way of thinking is, is the, what we have is the God that the atheists don't believe in. That's the cosmic, right. The cosmic bully. Yes, that's right. A competitor with the rest of creation. And so eventually it becomes, you know, like Glenn has talked about with kind of current politics, a zero-sum game. If, if I'm going to exercise my freedom and power, well, then I've got to somehow get God out of the space, right? i got to kind of bracket God out so that I can be a true agent in power. Now, getting, getting to back to literature, I mean, Philip Pullman in his, mm -hmm. dark, his dark Materials series reduces God to the God of the nominalists. In other words, he has no clue. He has zero understanding yeah. of classical theism yeah. and how being and, you know, all this stuff yeah. sort of create or sort of just sort of sort of just destroy his yeah. entire literary project. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, but they think that they're really going up against God when in fact they're just going up against the yeah. biggest guy in the room. Well, that's right. And, and, you know, and I've heard others say, you know, if, if that's the God you don't believe in, well, we, we, share, we share that with you. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. I'm a Christian atheist. <laughs> the God you don't believe in is also the God I don't believe in. <laughs> that's right. And that's maybe why early Christians were often called atheists, because they didn't believe those gods that were, were not the infinite source of all things, but merely bigger things within a shared order of the same. And yeah, so, and actually, there's some, there, at least some of the early church fathers, the apologists, make that point. Hmm. That when a monotheist uses the word God, he does not mean the same thing that a polytheist means when he uses the word God. Hmm. That's right. Yeah, really it, it, radically different concepts. 
yeah, I, I, I'm working on a sermon for Sunday, and, and as Tom knows, I'm preaching my way through Acts, and there's so much material to work with along these lines. But have you ever heard the term PSYOP? In other words, psychological operations. So what we have with PSYOPs is basically propaganda, and much of the resistance when it comes to the early church was expressed through PSYOPs. In other words, influencing you know, sort of civic leaders with partial or par- partial truths. So, you know, early Christians were accused of being atheists, mm. cannibals. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, what, what were the, what, what were the, what were the gods that the Christians were accused of not believing in? Big bullies. That's <laughs> who they were accused of not believing in. And, and why were they called cannibals? Because they ate Christ's flesh and drank his blood. You know, so it was this, you know, it was, it was all about, misleading information, taking things out of context, but also at a very fundamental level, a different way of understanding what we're talking about when we talk about God. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's right. And I think this has been why, you know, part of the task of apologists and, and theologians and, and Christians is, has been to, to actually sweep away this propaganda as well as these bad conceptions. And I, you know, I have to be honest, I think a lot of my, even the students I get from, from, from Bible believing churches still work with this notion of God. And and it happens a lot, even in reform circles where we want to talk about God as sovereign, but we all, we often talk so heavily about as sheer will as though that's the only aspect of God there is and that that governs everything that we kind of place ourselves into this voluntaristic, which means kind of a fully will conception of God. And that opens the door to it. You know, that there's a, its own show with that. I mean, we, we, we can end up very quickly with Hegel, um, and we already are now in the church as, as well and, and variations of it. Um, so, yeah, this this thing is huge. And so what um, what Hibbs is dealing with is he's he's not so much coming at it, even though he is a, a you know, a, a Christian. Um, he's not coming at it strictly from a Christian analysis, even though he draws off of his Christian scholarship. He's looking at it in, in the context of American American. Um, culture and politics and governance. And one of the things he kind of reminds me a little bit of like uh, Patrick Deneen is he, he's looking at uh, Tocqueville's analysis sort of of democracy and, and sort of you start out with, with what, what was working, this combination of Judeo-Christian civic religion with this enlightenment notion of, of human, human um, you know, self-governing, if you will, limiting government and um but emphasis on balancing liberty and and uh, equality but then he looks at the tensions that grow when those things start to get themselves out of sync or lose people lose their trust and there's this kind of seed of libertarianism if you will in this enlightenment conception of the human that he will argue similar to, to other people we've talked about can open the door to this kind of ni- American kind of nihilism. You know, that's, that's a great segue. Pa- Patrick is a friend of mine. Patrick Deneen's a friend of mine. I, I should try to get him on the show. That'd be kind of yeah. a fun show. It would I, be. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, Glenn, you were going to say something. Yeah. One other aspect of nominalism that's worth highlighting that was sort of in, in your explanation of it is the idea that, 
Um, well, the way it's technically described is that things are not similar, they have similarities. And what that means is, you know, when you look at a bunch of dogs, they have similarities because they've all got the same basic biology, but there's no uniform canine nature that unites them. Hmm. Yeah. Everything is atomized. And when you do that, you immediately remove meaning from the world. And this is something, again, we've talked about multiple times, is the utter loss of meaning in the modern world, that we're a world of facts, not a world of meaning. Yeah. You lose meaning, the only place that you can end up is in nihilism. Right. Yeah. yeah when people and, use the term uh, stereotype, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's, a, that's sort of you know, a, a moment where someone shows their cards as a nominalist. Because yeah. they're essentially saying that there's, there's no genuine common nature to a particular set of things, whether we're talking about dogs or humans or whatever. It's just a name that we've uh, uh, you know, fixed. And the only thing that really matters is the will of the subject. And we don't have to think about the nature of the, of, you know, the group of people or a group of things we're talking about. Which is, I mean, I think you, you hit right on what one of the driving frustrations that creates is, uh, I think Charles Taylor will call these, these uh, cross pressures, because when you have society in which, on the one hand, everything is, all stereotypes are kind of imposed categories on people, um, what you have is this conflict of wills that happens. So you have no right to define me and my group this way. And by doing that, you're, pre- you're, you're, you're imposing an interpretation and that becomes systemic. And therefore, you have um, institutionally defined me, labeled me, and now I'm determined by this relationship of consciousness of being in this. So this stuff takes form very quickly once it becomes the interpretive lens of 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 a people but we'll, we'll get back to that uh, that's that's there's rich stuff there so one of the things following tocqueville and i think similarly talks about the way in which liberal democracy um had its two principles of liberal uh liber- liberty or freedom and equality oftentimes get disjointed because, um, because of the complicated relation anyway by those enlightenment interpretations Now he doesn't go a lot into the detail of interpreting them, but he says like Nietzsche although in in a less dramatic fashion he Tocqueville uh, worried about the way egalitarianism might curb liberty both principles unmoored from one another and applied incorrectly and inordinately can become sources of nihilism insofar as freedom comes to be understood in terms of radical autonomy it opens a path to nihilism. If free choice is regarded as the highest value, then there's no standard in light of which we can embrace choice. Um, the same can be said of certain ways of equality, not equality of opportunity or before the law, but equality of opinion. If in a sort of relativistic manner, every opinion is regarded to be of equal worth, then there's no basis for distinguishing better, worse, true or false, noble, and uh, fact and opinion. And so what you've done is you've created this nihilistic context. And again, then your options become limited. They can go, they can go one direction in which it becomes a place at which a certain tyrannical 
um, violent mood comes to, to start imposing it, or it becomes this complete um, apathy and indifference. And there is, and so you, you're, you're left with what creates the conditions for a lot of the way film represents life. It's what he's on to. Right, right. And so that's kind of one of his, um, his uh, big, big things. So when he talks about, he goes, are there stories um, that are sometimes simultaneously about nothing and something? Um, that's his first question. Um, you know, and he says, there are stories that wrestle with, but don't succumb to nihilism. And so he would talk about the ice storm and the secret lives of dentists um, and then uh, all the way up to Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, right? So it wrestles with these themes of nihilism, but it doesn't succumb to it. Um, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books, um, The Book of Eli, and he even notes here Peter, Jack Peter Jackson's films of, of the Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, where, you know, is it, is it worth it? You know, what, what is it that holds, keeps us going in light of, you know, the continuous... Right. Well, and, and one of the things to reflect on here, too, is kind of how these interpreters who may be kind of in sort of working through things themselves may not be always the best spokespeople for the particular thing at any given time. I'm thinking about J.K. Rowling. You know, when we think about J.K. Rowling, maybe 10 years ago, she was this uh, advocate for homosexuals. You know, she was a person who who had created this marvelous world you know, Hogwarts and stuff like that. And then she came out and, and, and essentially brought Dumbledore out of the closet. You know, he was a closet homosexual all along and you didn't know and you liked him. Ha 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 ha. Now she finds herself in a very awkward spot <laughs> where people have essentially taken the things that she advocated and took them to their logical conclusion. So they've, they're telling her now and condemning her now for saying that women are a particular and unique kind of human being. <laughs> and that men, uh, by definition, cannot qualify. Now, I, I agree with her. <laughs> <laughs> but what she's actually arguing with is her own arguments 10 years prior. So yeah. she's sort of seen how this stuff has all played out. Now, whether or not she's been able to make the connections, I don't know. But... Yeah. Uh, I have to give her some credit because she's taken some hits uh, recently. Now, she's a billionaire, and I don't think she's suffering too much. But anyway. Well, and what you get on there. Actually, I'll give her a lot of credit. She is not backing down. Yeah, yeah. Which is really remarkable in our current culture because everybody backs down as soon as there's any pressure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you got to give her some points for that. Now, uh, you know, when you're dealing with, like, Lord of the Rings, you know, there's the material. And so Peter Jackson, even though I don't think much of him, yeah. you know, and I don't actually think too much of the films, <laughs> at least he has something he, that, that in order to actually tell the story, he had to kind of stick to. Yeah. And it was, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of a, a hard one to pull off doing any film, I think with that material. So, right, so right. but, but yeah, I mean, yeah. he, and, he probably brought some of this in into it. Um, and so one of the things that uh, Hibbs is getting at in this first chapter is this kind of, okay, just because it has these nihilistic strands, does that make it a nihilistic film? He's kind of defining and categorizing here. 
Um, and he'll give examples also of sort of um, Woody Allen, as we mentioned. Um, he talks about his film, uh, You Will Meet a Tall, Dark Stranger, where the narrator quotes Macbeth lines at the beginning, that life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And so, and he gives an a, a, a interview later that on his release of, of the film, Whatever Works, um, he confesses to feeling impotent against the overwhelming bleakness of the universe. Everybody knows how awful the world is and what a terrible situation it is. And each person distorts it in a certain way that enables him to get through. Um, and and uh, Hibbs is kind of very sharp with, with Al. He thinks there's a certain kind of... Uh, is a certain kind of um, non-seriousness about his nihilism. Um, part of it is a buffer or an excuse to kind of live maybe his life the way he wants to. But the other side of it, he thinks, is, is really um, just a lot of hypocrisy um, that, that he finds. And he kind of teases it out. Um, and, and I think he really especially sees... He said, Woody Allen has this conversation, a real conversation with Billy Graham. Um, and, but Billy Graham kind of turned his argument at the end to a very pragmatic, well, look, if I'm, if I'm wrong at the end of the day, I haven't lost anything, where if you are, you lose everything kind of thing. And, and I think Woody, to, to Woody Allen, he, he was sharp enough to see that that was sort of a therapeutic answer. And if a therapeutic answer is all that Christianity is going to give you, well, his films can give him that. And so uh, Hibbs kind of sees this as a therapeutic kind of nihilism, right? Um, and, and, and he says, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to just quote Macbeth over against your films um, and think that that's going to justify him. Because actually the, the story of Macbeth isn't a nihilistic book story at all. And if you're going to make sense of the nihilistic disposition in that quote you know, of the character, you need to look at the rest of it. It's not meant to be a springboard for film, but it's a really interesting engagement he has here. But he says, a nihilism is the vantage point of, a more, of the morally depraved, not the normative judgment of the artist. If art no longer communes with the good, the true, and the beautiful, and if it feels duty-bound, whence such an obligation in a nihilistic world, to inform us that its magic is merely illusory, then it loses its capacity to enchant or even pleasantly distract. It loses its claim on us. Citing great works of the past, whose very assumptions the new art has dismissed as so much infantile wishful thinking cannot improve matters. And that's his criticism of, of Woody Allen's nihilism, is that vantage point is really morally depraved. It can't become a normative judgment of an artist. And uh, yeah, that reminds me of the silver chair, C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, when, when, you know, in that, in that story, Chronicles of Narnia, what you have is you have the, you know, the, the good characters, they're, uh, you know, uh, the, they're, they're beneath the surface of, of the world. And uh, in that place, um, I think it, it's the green witch, if I remember correctly, <laughs> she, uh, she, you know, intimates that, there really is no sun. What you've actually seen is just the light and you've sort of projected it into the sky and hope that there would be something real out there, mm. but you can't prove that there's such a thing exists and, and the lion, you know, Aslan, you know, all this kind of stuff. So she, she paints this picture and I think it's Puddle Glum, uh, or is it Puddle Glum or Puddle Gum? If I can't remember, 
Yeah. But anyways, that character, the Marsh Wiggle, who says, I'd rather live in my fantasy than your real world. <laughs> <laughs> but, but actually, that is an indicative, I think, uh, and this is kind of gets us to a kind of ontological argument, that uh, in order for us to make that judgment, that I'd rather live in my fantasy than in your real world, there must be something real that calls mm-hmm. your fantasy or your, your real world into account. Because if I can make that judgment, if I can say your your real world is just a bunch of nothing, <laughs> then I think then that implies that there's some some reality against which we can measure it. it, it yeah. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Well, that's right. We have access, and, and of course, with figures like uh, C.S. Lewis, we have access to it. Um, we, you know, the access to it sometimes will come through the imaginative and, and, and the like in ways. And again, we'll get to this in a little while because he will talk about romanticism as one of the counter trends to the nihilism in film. And I do think that in Christianity, the, the kind of um, the thinkers that have impressed me the most have not been the, the Hodge kind of rationalists of doing um, of systematic theology, even though I appreciate what they're onto um, in the time they were dealing, but, but has been those that have drawn into the, the romantic contribution, but didn't get caught up in the, the, the romantic worldview, um, but actually were drawn to what the romantics were trying to retrieve. They just didn't do it in the way that the Christianity had originally already already been able to do it. Um, and so I think that that's something very sig- significant there. Um, and I'm going to get back to that. So that point may be worth um, developing again here in a minute. But one of the things he talked about, and I'm, I'm only going to do a couple of these, because I know we're pressed with time, but one would be the, um, he starts with the early kind of American film. Um, and he talks about the way in which these tended to be very strong in promoting the ideals of, of sort of, you know, the liberal ideas of, of sort of classical American culture. And, um, and one of the things that he talks about with that is just the way in which these films, they may have dealt with some nihilistic characters and they would wrestle through the, the, the blessings of the ideals but also their imperfection. You'll have an individual that appears to be, a, you know, a self-made person, but then you start to see by the end of the film that they're connected to this this whole um, in a way that you wouldn't predict, you know, by the, the start of the of the film. And I'm trying to find the, uh, the exact film list here, um, but that was one of the the kind of early contributions. So, and they saw themselves specifically, the filmmakers, as trying to be almost hand in hand with the civic religion of society. So it wasn't about um, putting a question mark over everything. It was trying to cultivate um, the goods, but in a very realist sense um, that that came with kind of the general American experience. I'm trying to find uh, the name of one of the key figures here. Let me see. But well, one of the examples he gives is "It's a Wonderful Life," um, right. where you have somebody who gets into their own despair, despair, their individuality, their needing to be affirmed, um, them being pushed to the end, and then realizing something was significant there all along. Right. Um, but he talks about the way, I can't really find that part here, but he talks about the way that moves and shifts with kind of the, the film noir. 
where you start to get this, this, it, this was not nihilistic film, but what you were able to get um, in this film was kind of a darker mystique around the, the American or the Enlightenment experience. So maybe there's a more sinister way going on here, um, you know, rather than, than the classic kind of everything's good, something went bad, everything comes back to you seeing how good things are. So he sees this as kind of a mood change in film. And, um, and so that kind of has a way of introducing something different. Um, then what he gets to onto, well, he thinks pivotal is the, the Kill a Mockingbird, the film, To Kill a Mockingbird, because what you have there is, is you have a film able to do a lot of things from a child's perspective in the story, is learning about justice and injustice and seeing that there can be dark things and, and injustices and, um, and kind of the moral challenge. So what you get is film trying to do some very some cultivating work here. You see the, the, the filmmakers are very conscious that this isn't just putting together a film for a film's sake, but it is meant to, to communicate. Um, and so that, you know, that, was kind of, that was kind of pivotal in his analysis. And he has this great quote in it um, where he's talking about the character in To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Atticus. Um, and he, he's, he's, the father comes home, the lawyer, um, who's trying to teach his kid about doing justice. And he says, basically, you have to get the one, you need to get to know your neighbors, um, people who are of different races, different religions, different economic status, not as an abstract procedure, but a recognition of their humanity. So there was definitely this moral ish, you know, this moral center, religious um, psychology being shaped in these films um, to kind of value, you know, the, the kind of American experience of valuing everyone grounded in a certain kind of Judeo-Christianity. Um, and so things weren't living up to those ideals. This film was kind of showing ways that it always doesn't happen. But what you really start to get um, with like film war with the killers, I don't know if you remember that film or DOA, Dead on Arrival, it was another one. Some of these I need to go back and see or look up because uh, they're, they're kind of, um, but these things kind of put conventions into question. So film kind of opens up the possibility of a more comprehensive look at things. Um, and so it would kind of find little points um, in, in the Enlightenment vision that were weak. But it wouldn't be nihilistic in the sense that it had no hope, but they did tend to be pessimistic. Um, but, and then he, but the thing that, that's consistent in all of these is there is a moral vision. Yes. Yeah. And, and the thing that really sets the, you know, a, a truly nihilistic view is the lack of a moral vision or the perversion of a moral vision. Yeah. You know, where you get the Ubermensch or something like that, it creates a moral vision out of nothing, but it has no reality to it. It's just what this person has decided that they're going to pursue. Yes, excellent. And see, what he, he's saying is like film noir still was part of a moral vision. He right. actually was it a still does have one. of a pre-modern. He puts it this way. It's interesting. He goes, um, by putting our conventions into question, film noir opens up 
the uh, possibility of a more fundamental inquiry. Its accent on darkness and mystery is an affront to the enlightenment, confidence, and transparent objectivity and progress. According to the modern concept of progress, we know precisely where we are, where we want to go, and how to get there. Film noir recovers the pre-modern concept of life as always a tenuous quest, wherein we are dependent on veiled clues and the uncertain assistance of others. And so yeah. he, he kind of that's, that's a great statement. I like, I like that one a lot because, it, again, it points to, to something that, that I think is really critical here, and that's in film noir, what you have is, like I said, very clearly a moral vision. There is a right, there is a wrong, but it is not set up in this sort of standard rationalistic, you know, triumphalistic thing that you get in more Enlightenment-inspired films. Yes, yeah, that's that's right, and, and and I think he he does a good job of of kind of spelling that out, and then he does get into Kantian man as we talked about, and then how that eventually leads to a kind of in the in the American context a move from from kind of this this initial classic liberalism, if you will, to a more a more a stronger emphasis on the autonomy and the self legislating um, view of the human which starts to take on more and more aspects of choice being what defines everything. And he, he uses the, exam, the 1992 decision, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, where the, the decision said, at the heart of liberty now is the right to define one's own concept of existence, meaning the universe, and the mystery of human life. And he talks about the way in which this starts to flood into so much of the, the film and, and its, its emphasis. And this creates the conditions for this very strong and it, it went before that, but that statement sort of summed up what the thread was in the direction things were going. Yeah, and if I can jump in here, that statement is actually the antithesis of the classic definition of liberty. Yeah. It is actually, it, it couldn't be further from what the word liberty actually means. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, you know, I was uh, I was in a denomination before uh, another denomination before the one I'm in now. And uh, <clears throat> when I was ordained, the uh, the man who was officiating it would be like a bishop. He was referred to as a general superintendent. Uh, he quoted Kant when. <laughs> And the categorical imperative, you know, when, when he was uh, addressing me, you know, with the charge. And I, and I, you know, I was educated enough to know what he was doing. He didn't actually say, as Immanuel Kant said, but, but when, he was sort of, when he was describing his ideal in, in terms of, uh, you know, what reason and ethics would call, you know, require of us, I thought, that's Kant you're talking about here. That's not New Testament at all. But that would, <laughs> this was an evangelical denomination. Yep. And, uh, and there are so many ways that this stuff has kind of infiltrated into our thinking, uh, even at the level of the clergy who ought to know better. You know, this brings up something that's really bothered me uh, for years uh, with evangelicals and broadly, but actually more specifically with the reform world, is we're not adequately educated in the history of philosophy right you know i uh 
I think that there are a lot of people out there who think that an introduction to, you know, apologetics and uh, reading a little Van Til will do it for you. No, yeah. you need to actually get into the philosophers yourself. That has to be fundamental to our education. You know, we talked about nominalism a little while ago. In my junior year of college, we had three introductory courses to philosophy, ancient, medieval, and modern. Think about that. I had three full courses just in a particular you know, area of philosophy. And I can remember when nominalism was addressed, I just felt when, I, when, it, when, it was, when the subject was raised and it was introduced to me, there was just something that's, that I just felt kind of sick, <laughs> if you know what I mean. You yeah. know, that this, this can't be right. This is just so obviously wrong. Uh, and, and most uh, people today don't even know what the word nominalism is referring to when, it's, you know, when we're addressing philosophy. They think that we're talking about something like being a Christian in name only. And, yeah. and we're not talking about something that's shaped the entire modern outlook, including 95% of the evangelical world. Yeah. It, it's interesting. I'm teaching currently a class I teach regularly, contemporary theologians. And it's exact, that's exactly what happens. You read the book, and the book's huge. And I, and I, really, I really would choose about five or six books for the class, but it's a summer class. So they're all, you know it's not gonna be, they're not going to be read. But one of the things they keep asking is, okay, we're seeing how the philosophers impacted all this. How, how did the theologians impact the philosophers? <laughs> I said, they didn't really. Mm -hmm. I mean, here and there you had a Paul Tillich and you had someone in, in, in the field of um, sort of philosophy of religion, um, or maybe a Karl Barth who made such an impact that he had to be discussed but, but these people could philosophically position where they were, why they expressed things the way they did, and then they would just write them off because, because of that. And, uh, and I think, I mean, even someone Carl, like Karl Barth, who was someone who was conscious about retrieving theology for theology's sake, he was very astute philosophically. He was steeped in the Kantian tradition. He was aware of it. He knew he was trying to subvert it. I think he didn't understand medieval theology well, but these theologians had to deal with it because these ideas were challenging them in the church from every direction. And so, yeah, we, we, we kind of, uh, we run with the philosophical trend many generations down the road and we're not even aware of it. Yeah. yeah. One of the arguments I've made for a long time is that the best way to be a thought leader is to find out where people are going and then get in front <laughs> um, and, you know, Plato, for example, the reason why Plato is the dominant philosopher in the ancient world is he came up with the best explanation for the worldview that they already had. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's what you see in modern philosophers as well. The yeah. ones that end up being the most influential are not actually influential, they're reflective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the same yeah. thing goes with theologians. Yeah, I think that I think that there's a lot to that. Well, and interestingly, it's in this is the thing I'm seeing. This book I think brings out very well is the way in which even these filmmakers and the people who write the scripts, of course, they're reading literature. They're they're picking this up not usually by reading, say Heidegger, for example, but through through the chain of, of literature and arts and different cultural forms, but they put it in ways sometimes even in their satire or their, their kind of humorous, dark ways of putting it, 
they say it better than we ever could, and they show a lot of the, the, the kind of the absurdity. I'll, I'll give you a great quote. You, this is kind of a disturbing film you don't want your children to watch. That is called Train Spotting. I don't know if you guys remember that one. I've heard of it, um, but I've watched it. Yeah, it's 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 disturbing. Let's put it that way. But it one of the, his he says one of the funniest um, and compelling illustrations of sort of what happens when this autonomous self becomes dominant. Um, this is a bear with me. It's a quote from one of the characters in the movie. Now he's trying to he had quit taking heroin, so this movie is all about it's sort of like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. You know, it's all about the kind of Scottish lowbrow guys trying you know living in a very rogue place um and he, there's one of the good quotes in the film i, I recall this is when um when what the main character said uh we're scottish they said we couldn't even be colonized by a good country he was talking about britain <laughs> no offense <laughs> no offense to my english folks um but the, but uh, but that was one of the lines of it. But anyway, he he wants to decide. He decides to get back on heroin through a democratic process. He the, the people around him vote on it. This is where he goes. But he's talking about the absurdity of, of modern you know forms of enlightenment democracy when they become radicalized. And so this is uh, his last his main quote. He goes, "Choose life, choose a job, choose a career, choose a family." Choose a blank big television. Choose a washing machine. He goes this down this whole list. Choose fixed interest rate mortgage payments. Choose a starter home. Choose friends. Choose leisure wear. Matching luggage. Choose a three-piece suit. He goes on and on. Choose rotting away at the end of it all. <laughs> Throwing up your last in a miserable home. Nothing more than an embarrassment to the selfish brats you spawn to replace yourselves with. Choose your future, choose life. But why would I want to do a thing like that? I choose not to choose life. I choose something else. I choose heroin. <laughs> but this is that, this right, is that right. whole, because the, the choice is what is sacred and it yes. is unformed and it is guided by nothing but this, this, this unshaped desire oriented towards nothing but fulfilling that desire. Why would he want to choose all those other things when this is the desire that's going to, to give him what he thinks he needs at that moment or wants at that moment? Well, this would probably be a good place to wrap it up. We've kind of get into that point. But I, I think that what that demonstrates, of course, is the fact that he doesn't see any intrinsic meaning to any of the things that he's chosen. Now, that's some right. of the, he's mixed it up, you know, three-piece yeah. suits and washing machines with yeah. children and, you know, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, but that demonstrates that he has no scale of value. He's got no ability to evaluate the, the intrinsic worth of things. It's all about the choosing. Yes, and, and I think he's trying to show, in a way, he's not, he's not sitting here saying, this is a good thing. I think he's really saying, this is kind of what, this is what we're left with. When you're left, when, when everything is an act of will, nominalism, yeah. when yeah. everything is an act of will, that nothing matters. I mean, it's it, every act of will is equal. Yeah. 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 Which is why, you know, uh, it's impossible in public anymore to evaluate, in other words, to, to sort of distinguish choices and say that some are better than others. You no, know, the only way you can do that is say that 
you know, maybe this particular set of choices will redound to the public good. But even if you use that phrase, public good, people are going to, the hackles on their neck will, will you know, yeah. rise and they'll accuse you of things. Anyway, it, it's a, it's a, been a, a great, you know, conversation, Tom. Is there anything you want to say as you wrap up? Uh, no, I think that was kind of introducing one side of it. Um, the next time, next day I have that I'll do it, um, I'm going to prep in advance, but I want to address, because he brings romanticism as kind of the alternative that the American culture runs to in film to kind of avoid this end. But it can also likewise create a nihilistic result, and, and we, we see that. There's a lot of interesting uh, films to get into with that, so I look forward to following mm. that up. Yeah, great, uh, great. Anything you want to say, Glenn? Uh, yeah, my wife keeps um, pointing to a note she she gave me saying, "What's the title of the book?" Um, <laughs> so, um, I, and and I I also want to note that the day that this goes up is going to be our 40th anniversary. Oh, nice. So with that in mind, I would really like to get the answer to her question. Yeah, <laughs> can you remind us what the title is, uh, Tom? To the book there that you were that we've been uh, discussing. Is that that's the book you want, Glenn? Yes. Okay. Uh, shows. I thought I thought he wanted the name of the the sequel that uh, she's waiting on from Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is there is that too, but I think okay. we have the name I of think, that. We just yeah. don't, have the <laughs> don't have the book. <laughs> okay. okay. No pressure. Um, so this, Tom, Thomas Hibbs. It's called Shows about nothing, nihilism in popular culture. And uh, that's one he wrote on called Arts of Darkness as well, I think. I haven't read that, but I think it would be worth reading. Uh, he, he's, he's, uh, he's good to follow, he's interesting, and he shares a lot of, I think, our common uh, kind of insights. Right, right. Well, I think he's been inspired by Seinfeld with that title, The yes. Show's About Nothing. <laughs> he gets into that as kind of one of the, the classic examples of a sitcom, a nihilistic right. sitcom. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and Jerry Seinfeld has kind of, uh, I think, demonstrated in, in recent years that he has another side. He actually believes that things have meaning, and he's kind of appalled at the state of the culture. Yeah. But anyway, we've said enough. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, folks, thank you so much for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your interest and your uh, uh, listening to us, and uh, we encourage you to do it uh, again next time. All right, I think that's it for today. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.